welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. David has a special guest, Dr. Kevin Kukaro, in the studio with us today. And uh, David, why don't you introduce your guest? Thank you, Tom. Kevin and I are friends from a few years back. We um, somehow ended up in the same pathway as far as working with chronic pain and, and, and moving forward with it. And I'm going to let Kevin introduce himself as far as some of the details, but he um, is a pain specialist who stopped doing active clinical practice for reasons we'll talk about on our second show. And I was down at a conference where we both presented in Oregon um, on a chronic pain conference with physicians, primary care, physical therapy, and different other specialties. And Kevin just has a phenomenal synopsis of how pain works. And that's what I've asked him to do today is simply discuss his knowledge of pain. But Kevin, uh, welcome. And uh, would you mind introducing yourself a bit to us? Sure. Thanks, David. I, I appreciate that. And uh, uh, I will just put out very early on here, the way we were introduced is because I do consider that you practically saved my life. <laughs> okay. And, 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 the, and the reason for that is because as you, as you mentioned, I am a pain specialist. And what does that mean is I had a background in anesthesia practice at the uh, University of Chicago as I did my residency. Then I did a fellowship in pain medicine at the University of Michigan. Then I went into the military and I was associate program director of the Naval Medical San Diego Pain Fellowship Program. Uh, and that's a super long way to say that I was in the trenches. I was supposed to be the person understanding pain. And very quickly, I recognized that something wasn't working. Because where else do you go into a field and you don't see people get better? In fact, it seems like the more that you treat them, the more they get they hurt. And the more they, the worse they are and the more drugs or more procedures you're doing. And so where, where we intersected was... Uh, when I was in the military, it was easy because I, I blamed the military model, right? Because there's other people around and we could say it's the military system or the healthcare system. Um, we had what was known as a group practice model because we had deployments and things like that. So I may see a patient, one of my colleagues, and they were wonderful people. I love my colleagues, uh, but they may see them for a procedure and then somebody else may follow up with them. And we all had very different practice styles. Some of us were very conservative and we would walk into room. We, we did lots and lots of procedures. But some of us walked into the room and we said, is an injection appropriate for this patient? And some of my other colleagues, again, great people, but just a different thinking pattern would walk into the room and say, where is an injection appropriate for this patient? Okay. And you can see with different questions, you have very different kind of, some people just did lots and lots of injections. Some of us did less. So I thought it was that model that was the problem. And when I left the military, I very, I looked for an, a place that there were no other pain specialists practicing. I joined a medical group. It was just me. So then I could see a patient. I could evaluate them. I could do a procedure by following the best data that we had, the best evidence that we had. Uh, it was very conservative. And within six to eight months, I knew my outcomes were no better than what I was seeing in the military, meaning I want patients to get better. I want right. people to come in. I want them to, you know, if we're going to address something, let's do it in such a way that they're, by the end of that treatment, they should be on less medications, not more. They should be seeing less healthcare providers, not more. They should not be receiving injections every six months or three months or every year or two years. But they shouldn't be waiting until they have surgery in three years. They should be getting back to living their lives. And I right. wasn't seeing that in the military. And I didn't see that when I was uh, in my own practice. And um, it was just a smack in the face. When you, because now uh, the only person I could look to was myself 
And so I started looking at the research and I looked, well, okay, this is how I was trained. I'm a fellowship trained pain specialist. I'm boarded, but what, what do they say about my procedure? So I started a critical examination of what the literature said. And I realized very quickly that people who weren't paid to do the procedures, i.e. people who had no, uh, you know, biases about the procedure itself, when they looked at the data, they're like, this stuff doesn't work. And then when I started looking at the long-term data and recognized that really more injections just lead to more injections and more injections and the places with the most rates, with the highest rates of injections also have the highest rates of opioid prescribing. Really? Um, yeah. And, and so I had to start, then I started thinking, well, maybe, maybe, you know, I went back to the basics. I go, maybe we don't understand pain. And if I'm talking live, I, I try to emphasize this. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fellowship trained pain specialist. Right. And if, and if I'm saying I don't understand pain or I didn't understand pain, despite all the board certifications, maybe all of us need to take a moment and say, do we actually know what we think we know about what we say we're treating? Right. And in the, it was the end of that, that, that uh, when I was like in the throes of despair going, what am I going to do with my life? My this procedures don't work and the, this pain stuff doesn't make sense. That's when I reached out to you and, and you literally called me back when I was driving home. It was about 6 p.m. I pulled into my driveway, I got your phone call and I go, this is absolutely nuts. I don't understand how we're paying so much money on injections and surgeries when the data clearly says they don't work. Am I crazy? And, and this is what I will always be thankful to you. You said, no, you're not crazy. <laughs> Good. <laughs> that moment right there, let me tell you, that, that little sentence oh. was, it really makes a huge difference when you are going through that crisis. Great. Well, I mean, it's nice to know that it's part of, uh, part of putting out of that hole. I mean, I've been in that hole for many, many years. And of course, in my world, it's the same thing where people undergo these massive operations and don't get better. And then they have horrendous downside. And as you well know, I actually quit my spine surgery practice recently because these whole spine surgery things are totally out of control. And there's not really one research paper that actually documents that spine surgery works for back pain, not one. And we're doing $14 billion a year of surgery. It is, it is absolutely insane. Okay, let me, I like to say and have elaborate what you just talked about, but I'd like to just jump really quickly. So I think you and I both agree that the biggest problem, if you don't have the correct diagnosis and treatment approach for anything in any arena, it's not going to work. And of course, the data shows the United States that opioids are up, the, the pain epidemic is out of control, we don't know what to do. And nobody's asked the question you just asked about, well, maybe we have the treatment paradigm wrong. What I'd like you to jump right into is just go right into telling us about pain. About pain, yeah. So, um, you know, I, it's funny that, that pain, uh, everybody experiences it. It's sort of the universal experience. And yet we spend so little time actually investigating how it works. And I... So I just really want to briefly look at, like I pulled out one of my texts, my, my text from fellowship the other day, it's a 1400 page book. And there were less than 30 pages of that book devoted to the neurophysiology of pain. And when you look at what we do, we are basically practicing something that is essentially 17th century thinking. When in the last 30 years, the, the knowledge and understanding of pain has changed dramatically. And what I mean by that is people have a tendency to view pain as a thing. Like it's a, either like a physical structure almost that we can cut it out, that we can remove it, that we can kind of separate from the, from the human. And that's and we can't do that. And then on the second line, people think, well, maybe it's, it's, it's the same thing as a, as, as a sensory signal or a nerve impulse that goes to the brain, that there's pain signals, that we have pain receptors. And that's not true either. This idea that there's a sequential flow of pain from a structure up to the brain and, and, you can see that how 
any injury, whether it's, you know, whether we're talking acute or persistent or whatever, but if, if you just look at acute injury, there is lack of correlation between physical damage and the amount of pain somebody experiences. Right. And so we, we, kind, of, we, kind, of, we kind of forget that, and then we want to jump ahead to the chronic pain thing. But if you really look at this model, we're not even explaining acute pain very well. Right. And, and the reason for that is because pain is not, is not a structure and it's not a sequential process like, you know, a flow of electricity is what we would call an emergent process. Or sometimes people will call that a constructive process or a systems based process, which means that there are multiple inputs that are all coming together. And it is from all those multiple inputs, multiple ind independent variables that this experience of pain then emerges for from it. And that becomes very difficult to kind of explain um, simply without going into huge big details. And if I'm actually teaching physicians to really, really good at it, that's about an hour talk. But what I did is I started trying to try to think about, well, we have this complex emergent process that we know that there's at least three major contributors to. There's a sensory discriminative aspect, the sensory discriminative aspect of pain that provides information on potential location of a stimulus and characteristics of that stimulus. So if we feel something in our toe and whether it's sharp or dull or whatever, we have the effect. So, so you're, you're, talking about, you're talking about the re actual receptors in the skin or joints, correct? No, I'm, I'm talking about this process involved. So in okay. the sensory discriminative division, we'd have things like nociceptors, which I think you're referring to. But we also have normal sensory uh, receptors as well, mechanoreceptors, thermoreceptors, et cetera. And so it, like kind of going off the rails a little bit, if you look at nociceptors, they're actually evolved from different normal tissue structures. Okay. Nociceptors tell us when tissue structures change, when they're exceeding the realm of normal. Right. But that's only one dimension. Okay. So that, there's a signal that goes up to the brain. The second part is that emotional or affective motivational component that tells us the, the unpleasantness of what that signal means. Okay. So that's affected by learning, memory, mood. Um, uh, and then the other dimension is the cognitive evaluative form, but that's the attention and threat appraisal that says, does the signal even matter right now and what else is occurring? So when you're thinking of pain, any pain, you have to think in three dimensions. Now, the only can, other- can, can you review those again for us, Kevin, just really quickly, those three dimensions? Just so, so the three dimensions, so if, we, if scientifically you go sensory discriminative, effective motivational, cognitive evaluative. Okay. But very simply, you can think about it, there's a sensation, there's an emotion, and there's the cognition or the thinking behind it. Got it. Okay, Got it. so attention is the cognition, the meaning is the emotion, and the sensation is just the, 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 the signal that's being sent to the brain. And, and you can kind of think about this, if you have a burning sensation, right. that same burning sensation can have a dramatically different experience based on those other two variables. Are you paying attention so you notice it? And what does it mean to you? Because if you had a burning sensation in your mouth, but you loved spicy foods and you just bit a pepper, that would be a pleasurable experience to you. Right, got it. The same burning sensation in somebody else's mouth who doesn't like spicy foods and took a bite of something and inadvertently ate a pepper, that same burning sensation now has a dramatically different experience. It's very mm -hmm. unpleasant. I'm also thinking in terms, I was curious your thoughts. I'm always fascinated by, for instance, heavyweight boxers or any boxers of any kind, World Wrestling Foundation, football players. I mean, they take a lot of physical, there's a lot of really unpleasant physical sensory input, correct? Yeah. Do you want yeah, to comment well, on that for a second? 
Yeah, so there's, and we, I wouldn't say it's, we don't know whether it's unpleasant or not because it depends on what they're doing. So if you're in the middle of that boxing match and you're in a challenge state and you're like, this is, I'm going, I'm boxing for the heavyweight t- t- title of the world and the other guy's punching me, but I'm winning. Right. Your body may be taking physical, like we can say damage, right. but it may not be an unpleasant experience for you, right? The mm-hmm. same way as an extreme, if you're an extreme athlete, and you love to do 50 milers, these, these crazy guys that run like the 50 mile whatevers. Right. You're pushing your body past the thresholds of normal. Right. The tissues in your body will be telling you that you are, you're going a lot more than is normal for us. You're kind of pushing these limits. But that sensation and that entire kind of sensory input may not be causing you any sort of pain because that emotion and that attention to it is completely different. Got it. Okay. So, so you're talking about basically your triangle of the three parts to pain every time, every situation, correct? So that, yeah, and the triangle, which we, we didn't talk about is if you, the, the way that I quickly explain this is that if you look at fire and how firefighters fight fire, fire is a complex process. It doesn't spring magically from wood. But the firefighters do is they recognize that all fuel or all fire is constructed of three elements. You have to have a fuel source, an oxygen supply, and a heat element. And the reason that they understand fire so well is because if you can deconstruct a fire into those three elements, you know exactly how you need to target it. It becomes simple, no matter how complex or simple the fire is. And pain's exactly the same. Pain's got that sensation element. That's the fuel source. You have that emotion component, which is the oxygen. And, you know, again, we make it more unpleasant. The more oxygen, the worse it gets. Right. And then we have the heat, which is the co- that cognition, ultimate, the attention and the threat that we see there. And if we change any one of those, we can dramatically change the experience that people have. And it's, it's funny because we've, you know, I've been using the pain triangle here for about five years now and our community members can get this very, very quickly. They may not use cognition, emotion, and sensation. They use sensation, meaning, and thinking behind it, but they can start deconstructing their own pain, finding how these elements fit and start targeting and addressing those and people get better. Right. You know, in medicine right now, we've done a really disservice because we've really marketed the fact that this bone spur is the source of the pain, and somehow if we fix the bone spur, we're going to solve the problem or whatever whatever it is. And pain is a summation of sensory input that gets interpreted again through the cognitive and emotional components, and then you have to decide whether it's painful or not. And as you know, painful pain is a, is a wonderfully protective, complex, delicate sensation. That, as you know, when people are born without pain fibers called congenital indifference to pain, the average survival is only about 10 years. They just simply can't protect themselves. Or people that are paralyzed develop pressure sores because they can't protect themselves. And people with leprosy, again, can't feel their hands or their feet, so they'll walk right through a fire, et cetera. But the lifespan of somebody who's actually born without a pain system is actually about 10 years old. They can't protect themselves, and they've not been able to find any substitute in the mechanical world to substitute for a pain system. It just can't happen. How does that set of concepts, when you talk to patients and physicians, I mean, to me, it seems pretty logical what we just talked about. And part of it, in some way, just seems like high school science class where you have some unpleasant stimulus, your body reacts to it, and you take protective action to actually get back to a normal state. Um, there, seems, there doesn't seem to be much um, attention paid to it in medicine. When you talk to doctors and physicians, I, I know you kind of resistance, but what are some of the resistances you encounter when you present that pretty simple model? Uh, I just want to roll back a little bit to, to, the, to the congenital insensitivity pain that you were mentioning. Right. Um, 
so that's that's actually a misnomer and i know that's the way that it's published but congenital insensitivity to pain is actually should be known as congenital uh nociceptive disruption okay so it's in it's actually it's a disruption of the nociception, so they actually don't connect to the system. But there is actually a case report of somebody who has congenital insensitivity to pain and then developed something that was virtually identical to what we would call a neuropathic pain syndrome. Huh. And, um, and I'd be happy to send you that case report or whatever. With, with, yeah. with the, with, other than that, they do die because what happens is nociceptors are, a very, are the best fuel source that we have in the body. Right. Nociception is the best fuel source in the body. And that is so important because learning and pain are tied hand in hand, right? Pain, when we understand pain is not punishing us, pain is a protective system. Right. And what nociceptors do is allow us from a very early age to create these experiences that we associate unpleasantness to a particular sensation that we learn from so that we are actually protected in the future. So if you're three years old and you touch a hot stove and burn your hand, Pain in that moment, the snowsceptor send up, here's a sharp thing, there's a reflex art, there's this weird, unpleasant burning sensation in your hand that says, this is not good for me. It protects you now because now you're protecting the fingers, but what pain has now done is it imprinted a memory there. So in a future moment, when you see a hot stove, you're not likely to touch it. Right. And so with people with congenital insensitivity to pain, because they don't, they can't construct that experience that they learn from, that's when they touch hot stove repeatedly. They jump off of hills and break their leg and keep walking. They drop a spoon into a boiling pot of water while they're making pasta and they reach in and pull the spoon out because they're not learning that protection with that. So right. I, I, I just wanted to kind of, kind of push it in there because it's um, nociception is not pain. You can have pain without nociception, but to nociceptors are extraordinarily important for us to learn pain. Right. Um, now, from the from the physician standpoint, and, and I'm sorry, I kind of went off the went off the, the question. No, no, that was great. Uh, that was excellent. Okay, but um, it's been difficult. So I, I about for, for it comes to educating healthcare providers, the hardest point about us is we think we know what we don't know. Like people who don't know is easy to teach, but if someone thinks they already know something, it is a magnitude of effort more difficult to teach them. And physicians already think that they know pain. And so when I go in and try to teach pain, I have to actually get them to understand that they don't first. So they will be willing to listen to what I have to say. Right. But when they get it, like with, if they get it, uh, it can actually, it can transform practices. It's just trying to, it's trying to get through that prior learning that is so difficult to do. Right. The flip I, side of that, and I just want to put the flip side of that, which I know we can get into is even if they do get it though, the medical system is set up in such a way that they can't, it, it is extraordinarily difficult for any physician to practice good pain care, no matter what their specialty is in the United States today. Right. Let me, I sort of interrupted you here as far as explaining pain. Let me just get, let you go on and give a deeper explanation of some of the other parts of pain, what affects it, et cetera. Um, I think you know what you told us is really excellent, but in my simplistic, orthopedic terms, when I touch this table, it's not hot because my brain says it's not dangerous. And so pain basically is an output, is a result of sensory input that your brain is now determined is unpleasant. And the way that the human body survives is that these, when, it's, when your brain says this sensation is dangerous or unpleasant, it's a very deep unpleasant sensation that compels you to take action to survive. The species of creatures who didn't pay attention to their environmental cues didn't survive. 
So really what happens is that the species who survives actually survival of the most anxious, not necessarily survival of the fittest. But something is painful only because your brain says it's painful. Is that a reasonable statement? Yeah, all pain is, is, is constructed in the brain. All of right. it, 100%, whether it's a broken bone or you've had 40 years of back pain. And that's actually a great thing. So I, you know, people get really mad. You're telling me, you know, you're telling me my pain is all my brain. I'm like, yes, your pain is all in your brain. And that is awesome because that means we, okay, there's all sorts of things that we can actually do now to address it. To, to address but, it. But it's a hundred it's percent. And people think, well, that doesn't make it real. Everything that's real in your life is constructed in your brain. Right. Everything that's important to you. You're in, you know, we're, if you see someone, you see an image in your interaction, all of that data input, sight, sound, all of that stuff is constructed in the brain itself. Right. I mean, the only reason you're coming Kukaro is my brain took this visual input and the sound input in your body motions, et cetera. And my nervous system is now taking that sensory input and constructed the Kevin Kukaro. Yes. It's like it's constructed the chair I'm sitting in or the computer I'm looking at. Everything's constructed by your nervous system because your receptors, as you pointed out, have no inherent capacity to say this is Kevin Kukaro. You have to unscramble the signals. Yeah, it's, it, you can think about it like a, like a computer or a TV. Like just the input into the computer or TV doesn't do anything. Right. You have to have the processor. You have to have the backup data. You have to have all of these inputs that come together in order to construct that image or program or, or whatever. And our brains are, are remarkably similar, on a, you know, way more complex, way more amazing. Um, but it's all constructed in our brain. I mean, literally, right. we're, we're living in this little virtuality world in our heads. Right. Well, you and I spent hours talking about pain, and there's many, many layers to this. Are there a couple more things that you could tell our listeners that would be helpful for them to understand pain more? Because again, people, I think that medicine in some ways has been guilty as charged because we imply the pain is this. And by the way, we can fix it for you and it's going to cost this, right? Big part of the problem. But that being said, are there, are there a couple more points about pain that you think might add on to people's um, understanding of what we're trying to say? Because again, I realize it's a massively large conversation we're trying to cut short here. Yeah, and, and it gets fun. I mean, I could, I could definitely spend hours talking about it because I love it. And, and I think that's the... the I mean, sorry, and why, Kevin, why do, you, why do you love it? Most, I mean, again, the data shows why 20% of physicians are comfortable treating chronic pain and less than 1% enjoy it. What, what makes it fun for you? Why do you enjoy this? Well, I, I didn't start there, but it's the more you understand something and the more you can appreciate what it does... And the more you can see how the pieces fit, it becomes absolutely amazing. And when you understand pain is a fundamental protective system to the human experience, and that the flip side of pain is things like pleasure, it, 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 to understand pain well transforms your life. It gives you a deeper appreciation of everything. Uh, for my own personal standpoint, people are like, well, you've never hurt. I have pain. I have pain all the time but I appreciate my pain and I understand how it works. And so it's not, I don't suffer. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm so appreciative for pain. I, 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 it's an, it's so amazing. And I think one of the problems is when, when we diseaseify it or we even picture whatever it is, as this horrible, this horrible, awful thing, we make it even worse and we increase the threat behind it. And we make us more anxious and stressed out about it when really trying to just, I mean, we've had, and people, well, well, that doesn't matter. You know, I, I have persistent pain. We have people in our community. We have a lady, she had pain starting at the age of 14. 
And once she started understanding how these three pieces put together, she's 74 years now. She's got living the best life she's ever had. And I don't want to say she doesn't have pain because she still, you know, trips and stubs her toe. She actually fell in her yard and broke a rib. But, but her life is, is just transformed. And that chronic persistent stuff that had been going on for 70 years is gone. Right. That's the thing, as you know, Kevin and I are on the same pathway here. Um, I just spent a week with Howard Schumer a few weeks ago, who Kevin and I know quite well. He, he wrote a book, Unlearn Your Pain. And Howard presented at a national conference of the highest pain specialists in the country. And he presented his data that showed that chronic pain is curable. It does go away. I mean, in general, of course, we have pain every day. But as far as the general grip that pain has on your life, it disappears. That's not the traditional medical model at the moment. And he was waiting for just a dozen questions. His results were spectacular. <laughs> he asked one question. I, I, and I don't, I don't, why are people so resistant to this? I don't, I don't get it. I honestly don't. And the pain specialists are the worst of the worst. Like right. I, I've told, I tell people now, like, don't, if, as a pain specialist, I don't recommend seeing 99% of the pain specialists unless you want to get worse. It, right. it, because they're not willing to listen or even see this information or even to appreciate the fact that the stuff that most pain clinics do is ineffective, makes things worse, has no data to support it, and yet people can get better. Right. Well, Kevin, this is great. I know probably we'll maybe do a few more sessions together in the next few months, but I want to draw this part of the session to close. In, in our next podcast next week, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about your journey and how you evolved to really enjoy treating chronic pain. We'll discuss this club that you were one of the ringleaders of called the Paniac, which I find fascinating. And I'm trying to become a, a gratis member of this at some point. But yeah, <laughs> treating chronic pain is one of the most parts of my experience by far, not even a close call. It's been remarkable. But Kevin, thanks a lot for your time. This has been remarkable. And then we'll, uh, next week we'll be talking about your journey and how you came to the viewpoint that you, uh, that you have. Great. Thank you so much, David. Well, thank you, David and Kevin, for a very for those insights about pain. I, I found it fascinating, and I'm sure our listeners did too. And I'd like to uh, remind everybody to return next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Also, uh, be sure to check out the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.